Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by Courtney Mom's new book, Out from Tin House, entitled Costa Alegre, inspired by the real-life relationship between the heiress, Peggy Guggenheim, and her daughter, Peggyne. Courtney Mom's Costa Alegre has been lauded by Laura Vanderberg, Julie Bunton, Amelia Gray, and R.O. Kwan. Imaginative and touching Costa Alegre captures a tricky mother-daughter relationship in the context of an elite group of surrealists fleeing Hitler's Europe to a mysterious resort in the Mexican jungle. Consider picking up or ordering a copy of Costa Alegre at your local independent bookstore. And while we are talking about Tin House's incredible lineup of books in 2019, there are several you can get as thank yous for becoming a supporter of the show, including Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, and Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, or become one of the select few early readers, receiving 12 Tin House books in three seasonal packages several months before they are available to the general public. If that isn't enough to entice you, today's guest, Elvia Wilk, is adding to the bonus audio archive a reading that she gave at an ecology symposium entitled The Shape of a Circle in the Mind of a Fish that brought together scientists, anthropologists, artists, and theologians around questions of plant intelligence and communication with the vegetal world. Elvia's essay is called Death by Landscape. It's title taken from the Margaret Atwood story of the same name, and it examines, among other things, the weird and the eerie in fiction and the possibilities of moving beyond the human in literature. All of this, the Tin House books, the early readership subscription, and or access to the bonus audio archive, and more, can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Elvia Wilk. Elvia Wilk was a founding editor of the Berlin-based architecture magazine Uncube and the publications editor for Transmediale, the journal associated with the annual Berlin Festival of Art, Culture, and Technology of the same name. Based in New York and Berlin, Elvia Wilk has published her writings in Freeze, Art Forum, Metropolis, Moose, Flash Art, and Art in America, among others, 
and is currently a contributing editor at EFLUX Journal and finishing a master's degree at the New School for Social Research. She has taught at the University of the Arts Berlin, Eugene Lang College, and City College of New York, and she's here today to talk about her debut novel out from Soft Skull Press, entitled Oval. Kirkus and its starred review calls Oval deeply weird and unsettlingly hilarious. Jeff Vandermeer calls it a fascinating near-future exploration of relationships, sustainability, and power. Sasha Frere-Jones says of Oval, everything is work, mourning, clubbing, reading your partner's moods, and everything is a scam. Plants that become buildings, jobs that become consultancies, apps that become jobs. With astonishing emotional accuracy, Oval records what it feels like to hover between two poles. Finally, Mackenzie Warwick describes Oval as J.G. Ballard meets William Gibson meets Jeff Vandermeer. Oval is an up-to-the-minute story about the twilight zones of corporate design, aesthetics, pharmacy, and bioengineering where there's nothing consultants won't break in the quest for innovation. What could possibly go wrong? Find out in Elvia Wilk's crisp and stylish debut book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Elvia Wilk. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the ideas animating the book, let's orient listeners to the situation they encounter as they open Oval. Talk to us about Lewis and Anya, who they are, where they are, and, and what they do. Lewis and Anya are the main characters of the story, and they are a couple. One is a man, one is a woman. They live on a mountain called the Berg in an experimental eco-settlement. The Berg is a fictional imposition on this reality-adjacent version of Berlin that they live in. Um, and many things about their Berlin universe are very similar to what anyone living in Berlin might experience. And many of them are tweaked or exaggerated or ramped up. And, and what do Anya and, and Louis do? So Anya is a researcher at a biotech sort of branch of a large corporation that owns much of the city's real estate. Um, she works in cartilage architecture research. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about that before we, uh, we move right. on from, from there. I'll just say one word about that. It's so far as, well, as far as I know, not yet a thing that is happening in the world, but she's um, developing at this um, department called Randy Research About Nature Department Indefinite. Um, the applications for um, um, sprouting cartilage cells on demand in remote regions of the world where they could become sort of flexible housing, for instance. Um, so this kind of like programmable wet material. Lewis works for an NGO, uh, which is called Basquiat with two T's, where he is the artist in residence slash artist in consultants um, slash sort of like brand of, <laughs> of the NGO, um, and it is his job to um, basically perform institutional critique on behalf of the institution. Um, and eventually he sort of um, invents a pill called Oval, which is where the story gets its name. And the, his goal is to um, address and maybe solve Berlin's income disparity by giving people this drug that will induce financial generosity. 
that that was a pretty incredible summary uh, <laughs> for both of them. But let's let's back up a minute and talk a little bit about the Berg, the artificial mountain where the corporate eco settlement is, where they live. So, if you were to pitch the Berg to us or to Lewis and and Anya, why why would someone want to live on the Berg uh, in an in an eco settlement such as this? Right. So in the story. Um, they're sold on it because it's offered to them for free. First of all, Berlin is becoming more unaffordable. Um, it's actually um, via a connection of Anya's uh, that they're offered this sort of like exciting and um, cool <laughs> opportunity. So part of it is this like cool cultural capital of living in this sustainable experiment Part of it is um, that it's quite beautiful and awesome to live on a mountain in the middle of a city. Um, but I should say that that's how it, it might be pitched to them in the book. But the Berg has actually been pitched to the city of Berlin in reality by an architecture firm called Mila, who several years ago rose to the challenge of one of these um, public competitions for a plan for architects to offer plans for how to develop the former Tempelhof airfield, which is one of the largest undeveloped public spaces in Europe right now. It was just left over. It was a Nazi airport that closed in 2001, and now there's nothing there. And periodically over decades, um, they've the city has said, what should we put here? And a bunch of architects suggest something, and then the city says, no, nothing. We want nothing. Huh. <laughs> and the citizens vote for undevelopment. So this proposal for a quote, vertical nature park, as they called it, to put this mountain there, you know, instead of condos, instead of a museum, just like, let's double the city's green space and people can hike and ski. Wow. (laughs) Um, And then they sort of perpetuated this hoax um, that this was maybe really going to happen. But it never was going to happen. It did happen in my book. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Of course. Well, one of of the great joys of, of preparing for the interview with you is doing a deep dive into all of the, um, of your unusual interests. <laughs> so, so on the eFlex podcast, you've interviewed people about abuses of power in the art world, about a project called Ergonomic Futures, which explores future scenarios for imagining new types of human bodies. And you've interviewed people about non-human collective intelligences. You yourself have also written about slime mold intelligence, about wetware which I'm guessing is related to this cartilage architecture endeavor Mm -hmm. of Anya's about um, computers. So computers made of organic biological material. You've, you've written about virtual reality and the literary movement called the new weird among a lot of other things. (laughs) But, but even as many of these interests find themselves in some fashion or form in oval, um, it did provoke my curiosity about, how the book began for you as a project? Were there certain questions or curiosities that animate or anxieties that animated you working on Oval as a, as a novel? Yeah, I think part, part of the process of writing, well, first of all, was realizing that my life is a series of eccentric hobbies that I've sort of cobbled together into a half career. And, um, the great thing about fiction, which was also kind of this like horrible thing was trying to put everything in it. You know, as soon as I started, um, and I started with the relationship between the two characters, um, really trying to figure out this sort of like their their gender dynamic and their power dynamic. Um, The story starts when Lewis's mother dies. So the the emotional core of the story for me is this problem of 
how they're dealing with his grief and how she ends up sort of um, co-opting his grief process and unable to imagine empathizing with him in a way that doesn't turn out to be really her own emotional projection. So that still is sort of the the core to me of, of what drives the story, even though a whole lot of other stuff is at, at different points kind of picking up and driving it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think those different strands uh, there's like a fine line and having, you know, having too many and having enough that there's a world that has its own internal logic and surface tension and holds together. Um, but over time, I mean, over a few years of writing, I just ended up, it was just everything went into it. <laughs> it's just, and, and so most of the writing process ultimately was just trying to get rid of the stuff that just didn't belong or confuse things too much, which is why probably a lot of the texts and and sort of projects that you referenced were things that I sort of came up came upon while working on the book and then ended up being like, okay, I can't, <laughs> I can't add this to their world. I'd better write a, an essay about it. Oh, interesting. So, so the novel process generated essays. For it you. generated a ton of stuff. Huh. Well, in book forum, Maria Dimitrova uh, reviews Oval and quotes an article by the novelist Tom McCarthy, who you've also been in, in conversation with before. The article's called The Death of Writing, and in it he argued that fiction has retreated into, quote-unquote, comforting nostalgia, and that it has been replaced by funky architecture firms, <laughs> digital media companies, and brand consultancies that have assumed the mantle of the cultural avant-garde. And he concludes by saying, If there's an individual alive in 2015 with the genius and vision of James Joyce, they're probably working for Google. And Maria Dimitrova says your book seems to exist within this world that McCarthy paints in this quote, with any future James Joyce not writing books but consulting for a corporation on the corporation's behalf. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to think a little bit with you about the world of Oval in this light what an artist and what language might look like in your imagined near future. Um, Does this co-optation of artists by corporations um, that McCarthy imagines and that your character Lewis is an example of, um, do you feel like that is the trajectory trajectory we're on in the, in, in the world that you're sort of, when you talk about Berlin being reality adjacent, that you're turning up the volume on a trend that you see or fear I see it everywhere, and in the arts, certainly, it it becomes a focal point. It sort of focuses a whole set of problems when, when you have this... Um, there's just such an old idea of the arts as sort of existing in a vacuum or kind of being um, um, not... Like, the artists aren't, like, Im- Im- implicit and instrumentalized like anyone else politically or that there's a possible like that that you could resist um co-option um through artwork when in reality i think that's like historically just doesn't really add up um artists have always been implicated in systems of power part of them wittingly or unwittingly um what's happening now which seems um it seems quite like most of what i I put in the book is is pretty much borrowed from life. I interviewed several artists who are also consultants and just have a lot of friends who work um, kind of like partially in a corporate sphere, partially in an art production sphere. Maybe they also write criticism. Maybe they also do kind of like ad copy. Just a, a, all of these things are um, are existent, and it, it it makes sense. The art, the economy of the art world doesn't 
sustain, <laughs> doesn't sustain kind of singular production in the way that um, we, we might have a fantasy that it does. So there's not a lot of choice um, when it comes to supporting oneself, um, which I also think is not historically recent. Um, but anyway, I guess your your question is getting at this idea of complicity versus criticality and whether or not it's possible to be both. And I think it is because I think it always has been. I think just the um, the structures that we're embedded in are so much more totalizing than they might have been before and, and pervade every aspect of our lives mm. that it's it becomes magnified. Um, and especially when you have this question of what art's role is, um, when it, we really should be asking, what is everyone complicit? How are we all complicit? And and is it possible to find places of critique, but but maybe more interestingly, resistance in the cracks of this totalizing, corporatized, um, for profit universe that most of us live in? Um, and I think it is, but I, I also never want to argue that the only way to resist is from within, because I still believe in efforts of resisting from without. Well, e- even if it's an illusion that there's an outside to capitalism, mm-hmm. I still believe in, you know, arranging a union or um, organizing um, in various ways that are sort of more traditionally antagonistic to a center of power. At the same time, I don't think it's the only, uh, by no means the only way, and I also think it's a bit, um, it's a bit, it's a bit. Oh, well, what's the what's the right way to put it? It's not the only way, and it has to. Like I think those sort of traditionally antagonistic methods need to coexist and um, acknowledge the idea of um, becoming implicated in something in order to explode it or in order to find ways to work within it. Hmm. So when you say this is really more an extension of something that's that's existed for a long time rather than something science fictional that you're imagining in the future. Do you, is it in the same light as say, like you go to a museum and you, all the art you see is of a certain century is from, uh, as portraits of aristocrats and their families or Mozart's church music. Mm-hmm. Would, would they have, would he have written church music if the church wasn't a patron and would, would, would these painters be painting these people's faces if if money sure. and patronage wasn't part of the problem? Yeah, that's part of it, this idea that somebody always has to pay for the art on one level. Um, I guess I'm thinking about more like recent historical developments of the relationship between art and industry. Um, so, for instance, um, one, of, one of my favorite examples is the artist placement group um, that existed in the UK several decades ago, um, where um, artists were placed in um, industrial or kind of like corporate contexts throughout Britain and um, given the job to not um, produce value, basically, to not be useful hmm. um, and to not serve the interests of the industry and for the industry not to serve the interests of the artist, which leaves this fascinating question, whose interests are being served by the artist being there? Hmm. Um, and John Latham, who is one of the organizers, proposed this idea of the invisible third client, which in that day probably meant the public, like the the public client, like whoever that may be, um, but not the, for profit and not for the art world, like something else. Um, and that's been today. I, I think about it much more of, on like an environmental scale or a planetary scale, like the third client being like all of us and, <laughs> and us not just being humans. Then. Yeah, exactly. Us beyond the human um, expand, like kind of, you know, expanding that idea of the human as um, as like the central audience, I think, is actually really fascinating to try to um, <laughs> to try to do. Um, 
but yeah, there is this sort of sense of, yes, somebody's always had to pay for the art, but then there's also the sense that, especially as like, you know, capital production ramped up and like, um, I guess like industrial development and then eventually like tech development and the tech and science industries, especially in the U.S., that's when the questions of complicity really start to irk people and freak people out. Um, so those are kind of the moments that I've been looking at kind of in the last century um, to try and understand like, um, yeah, are those terms even right anymore? <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Elvia Wilk about her debut novel from Soft Skull called Oval. Well, to think about this um, question of complicity and fighting from within and fighting from without, one thing that is obvious about your near future world of the co-opted artist consultant is that language has been turned against itself and it's divorced itself from its own meaning. And I really liked what Katie Wallman in the New Yorker said, and it's better than how I could say it. So I'm just going to quote her. She said, one particularly eerie fact about Oval is that you cannot read it literally. You cannot travel along a sentence and accept it at face value and decide whether the idea expresses whether the idea expressed seems sound or admirable or foolish or reprehensible. You must work backward from who's speaking to decode the meaning of the words. For instance, when representatives of the large organizations that employ Anya and Lewis talk of philanthropy, sustainability, and justice, they are not, we surmise, actually talking about philanthropy, sustainability, and justice, but let Anya ruminate on the same nouns in the privacy of her bathroom and they glow with an abiding human value. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about your sentences that, according to Waldman, can't be read literally um, in relationship to this larger conceptual project of Oval for us. I also liked that point that she made a lot. That was one of those rare, wonderful moments when somebody says something to you about your work that um, tells you about your work mm. uh, in a way and gave me something. It was really like a... Um, a generative kind of um, idea, I thought, because I, I do think a lot about the role of language. Um, hopefully not to digress, but especially kind of coming from a world of art speak, where I had kind of learned to write as an art critic, where you're really given a set of vocab that you can use and trying to subvert that vocab is just going to make it worse. So, you know, this where you just feel like you're trapped in, in lingo. Um, and and same in architecture. When I was writing about architecture, I was really trying to figure out, like, what is the language of describing architecture that isn't a press release? And, like, it's quite, it's quite difficult, actually. Um, so this idea that the, um, these kind of hollowed-out terms that circulate in the world of the book, like, I suppose, innovation or, like, futurity <laughs> um, or various other um, bits of jargon... Um, there's also some art jargon at various points, like this this kind of character who's absorbed the language of an art press release and can't put together her own sentences. <laughs> um, but I'm really, yeah, still trying to figure out what it would mean to, if not reinvest those words with some kind of human meaning um, or clout, what other words we could have. I don't know if it's possible, um, but I do believe that, like, branding speak has done something really strange to us because mm -hmm. no matter how aware we are of it, it is also our language. And I don't know, um, 
I think this idea of the character kind of in her bathroom trying to figure out like what is empathy, <laughs> what is generosity. I'm like, of course we we all do that. It's not as if empathy doesn't exist just because a company is capitalizing on the idea of empathy. Um, but how difficult to tease those things apart and how difficult to figure out what empathy could be if it weren't um, an instrumentalized um, experience to have. Well, I marked out one paragraph that I'd hope you read that is sort of an example of corporate art speak. Sure. Maybe a parody on corporate art speak. I'm not sure, but <laughs> yeah. uh, on page 89. Okay. I'll yeah. just give a small amount of context. So the characters are... Um, so Anya is sitting with her two friends, Laura and Damian, who are her, her best friends. And um, she they realize that um, the two friends don't really know what her job is because it's so jargon-laden and they've never really tried to figure out what she's doing there. So they're kind of reading from the um, website of this organization, Randy, where she is um, a researcher. So this is Laura scrolling the website and um, like sort of just repeating the mission statement of Randy. Okay. Randy is nothing more and nothing less than a place to tackle our world's greatest challenges by resolutely not tackling them. We've handpicked the best and most cutting-edge thinkers across scientific disciplines in order to finally resolve humanity's most profound questions about nature – not through products and solutions, but through speculative speculations on the future. After half a decade of collaboration with external consultants in the field of knowledge management, we at Finster have discovered that the key to advancing scientific research in the laboratory context is not to try to advance scientific research. <laughs> this is really hard to read. <laughs> After half a decade of collaboration with external consultants in the field of knowledge management, we at Finster have discovered that the key to advancing scientific research in the laboratory context is not to try to advance science, but to try to advance creativity. Hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. quite hard to read. It's really like a, yeah. it's unpleasant. Yeah, it makes me want to retreat to the bathroom and <laughs> yeah. meditate on what empathy is. <laughs> um, well, as you mentioned earlier, the emotional core and tension of the book is that Lewis comes back from uh, his mom's funeral and doesn't seem to be grieving, at least to Anya. He doesn't seem to be grieving. And this apparent lack of grief and his, in dis his disengagement with any sort of visible emotional vulnerability since his mom died becomes a, a growing tension between them as a couple and, and a distance. And the irony of it all is that we eventually learn that during this time of Lewis's supposed emotional self-estrangement, he's working on a pharmaceutical oval uh, that will, he hopes will make people more empathetic. Um, so you had mentioned that it he, he wants it as one solution to Berlin's income inequality, but could you pitch the concept? If, if you were Lewis, how would you sell us on, oh, on um, oval? Like, right. What is Oval supposed to do? How is it going to be distributed? And, mm -hmm. and you know, what are the hopes and aspirations? Or, and even if you want the, the supposed biology around it. Right. So I think that Lewis's idea, before I step into his shoes, um, that, that there's a fundamental sort of disconnect between the idea of empathy and the idea of generosity. So empathy, what we think it is, is feeling for another person by putting ourselves in their position and experiencing 
uh, or imagining their subject experience for ourselves. Generosity, uh, in the sense that Lewis is interested, is financial generosity, sort of this redistribution of wealth through, like, um, yeah, giving money to people on the street who need it, for instance. Um, and he sees these things as kind of the same, that feeling for another means giving money. And this is, you know, the fundamental concept uh, that neoliberal philanthropy is premised on, um, this idea that it's on individuals to feel feelings and that those feelings will prompt them to contribute to causes and save the world. This is markedly not working very well. Um, it also sucks to have that responsibility placed on us as individuals rather than thinking of ourselves as collectives and um, sort of like contributing to structures. Um, but in any case, uh, to, to devil's advocate, to be Lewis for a moment, um, the, the, the very provocative question that he continues to ask, uh, Anya, for instance, is why does it matter why you give somebody the money that they need to eat? Does it matter that it is uh, quote-unquote artificial? Or is it really that maybe speculatively that that instinct to give what one has has actually been marred by structures of capitalism that um, promote self-interest and that maybe kind of like removing the veil of capitalism in the brain could, <laughs> you know it's absurd but it but it's you know it's 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 an earnest proposal on his part he's truly proposing um, a functional fix um, uh, in the bodies of people who live um, in Berlin. And so rather than a top-down one, really a networked fix. And it's going to be distributed through a club drug. Yeah, it's basically going to be panned off as a club drug, partially because he sees the culture class as like the last bastion of complete selfishness who need to be unlocked for <laughs> spare change. And also because, well, it's not hard to distribute drugs in Berlin that way. That might actually be the fastest way to get anything into the water supply is like standing outside Berghain. But it's also, I guess, because... Um, he, there is kind of like nightlife presents various clashes of different groups. And so like you might actually be more likely to encounter somebody in a position of less privilege um, at night outside. So he also has this kind of like hmm. like ridiculous uh, but also kind of sad and sweet idea of this encounter with somebody on the street where you're sort of propelled and impelled to connect with them um, and help them. So this this too isn't as science fictional as it first seems. You, you've written a, a essay for Technosphere magazine that perhaps was prompted by writing the novel. Mm -hmm. Also, like your other essays, called "Love Pill: Oxytocin or Emotional Labor," about people who advocate for a chemical shortcut to social change, kind mm -hmm. of like oval, but in this case, it would be a hormonal nasal spray. Right. <laughs> uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit about, about oxytocin yeah, this and its is, advocates? Yeah. Um, oxytocin is a naturally occurring hormone released in the greatest amounts in the human body during labor and breastfeeding, but also any kind of physical intimacy can elicit it. And it seems like even pictures of like puppies and kittens can give you like a small rush of oxytocin. So um, there was a lot of pop psychology some years ago where there was just a lot of attention on the quote cuddle hormone. <laughs> um, and a lot of it was super gendered and weird because of course, because it's associated with bonding and intimacy and childbirth, it was a very gendered um, 
chemical. Like it's a it's a chemical that occurs in everybody, but it really became this like kind of female <laughs> female hormone, which I thought first was just very strange that we like like assigned this chemical the like a femininity. <laughs> Um, which says a lot about who we expect to naturally do stuff like pair bonding. Um, but also the um, then there were a, were a ton of experiments where they would um, try to give people oxytocin to see what would um, what would happen to them. Could you make them love each other more by just giving them some bonding stuff? And there there was like a curious lack of like the the obvious set of questions like like is it <laughs> is it cool to like shoot people's um, shoot people up in the nose with oxytocin to get them to like each other? And is that liking each other? But then it also just kind of um, you know, it reduces all sorts of relationships to a chemical automatic response. On the other hand, that's what our brains are made up of, is chemicals. And it's hard to say that one is artificial and one's not. Um, but you have to use a nasal spray because it's a hormone that can't get through the blood-brain barrier um, unless, uh, like, the, there's, like, small small gaps in the nasal passageway. But something also about this idea of, like, the nose spray seemed very <laughs> seemed very compelling and very strange to me. Yeah. Um, and there's so much hopefulness and so, so much cynicism in those experiments. Well, a lot of the questions, if we put aside the question of, of artificial or not, a lot of these questions around empathy reminded me of some of the things that Leslie Jameson looked at in, mm -hmm. in the empathy sure. exams. Um some of these unexamined assumptions. Like one is that if, if one assumption is if someone makes, if something makes us feel a certain way that that feeling will lead to tangible action. Yeah. And it reminds me of what she was looking at and other people have looked at of just because you feel empathy that's created from reading a book, someone's story doesn't mean that when you close the book that it's going to lead to meaningful action. In fact, for some people it might, they might feel like they've already done an action sure. in a sense. They've, mm -hmm. they've completed their empathetic action right. through the act of reading, and now they move on and, and, and do the rest of their life. Could you talk a little bit more about the questions of oval or oxytocin in, in the light of emotional labor? Mm -hmm. Since in a way they're looking at um, sort of doing a shortcut around yeah. around that question. Well, I will say just one thing that I find quite interesting in the research on oxytocin is that a lot of the time it it might increase bonding, but sometimes that bonding, in-group bonding, causes out-group um, antagonism. Mm -hmm. So you might be instilled to bond with people who are like you, but actually become um, much more suspicious of those who, who threaten the group. Um, so it's it's hard to just kind of put like a a rubber stamp of positivity on, on that. And, and a lot of like more recent pop science has, has sort of done the opposite and been like, Oh, the dark side of oxytocin. Um, and yeah. And I, I just, it's, it's interesting because it's both and neither. Um, so the character of Lewis in this book um, is certainly not an inhuman character. He's in, he's trying um, and he's trying to do good and he's trying to do good in a way that is, um, beyond the human scale. He's trying to affect massive change. Um, and yet within his own partnership, he's not doing the required emotional work to meet his female partner halfway. That is kind of how I would summarize that dynamic and a lot of others. Um, this is not to say that the incredible amount of kind of like obsessive emotional over-identification that the female character is doing is... Um, 
is is like not destructive, <laughs> right? Because she's overcompensating because he's not he's not in the middle with her, so she overreaches quite a bit. Um, and, um, and, and, and that in and of itself is a, is an emotionally violent thing to do, to, to project onto somebody that much. Um, so the imbalance of emotional labor, I think in this relationship is what leads Lewis partially, or it's, it's not unrelated to Lewis's idea for this like app for that solution to, um, like a structural problem. Um, and I guess in the writing I've done on oxytocin, I've just tried to ask like, in, in the same way as as in the book, um, like does any kind of like like could could a chemical um, actually help us if we didn't also do all of that personal and interpersonal work on ourselves? And is there something completely like fundamentally incompatible with your the way like if you treat people around you? in a, um, irresponsible way, is that fundamentally incompatible with saving the world? And are those scales, um, somewhat dependent on each other? And maybe solutionism on a grand scale requires this kind of blindness, um, to who's around you. And I don't think that my hypothesis is that that won't work. Uh, That's the first time I've heard the word solutionism. Oh, I, I might have made it up. I like it. I don't, I won't take I won't take credit for it, but I will say I might have made it up. Well, speaking of a solutionist that um, <laughs> that I found terrifying and mesmerizing in the real world, but also felt like could have been a character in Oval was um, in your oxytocin article, Doctor Paul Zach. Yes, Doctor Zach. Yeah, <laughs> he has such disturbing beliefs. For one, he thinks that countries with a higher proportion of trustworthy people are more prosperous. Uh, that poor countries are countries where there is less trust. And thus, if we could figure out the chemistry of trustworthiness, people like Dr. Zach could alleviate mm-hmm. poverty. So mm-hmm. this is solutionism, I'm guessing. I discovered this guy after I had tried to figure out what Lewis was doing. And there's just uh, there are a lot of these figures. But yes, that is solutionism. And it's solutionism that depends on connecting like financial <laughs> <laughs> success with moral goodness, mm-hmm. which is wild, um, but completely like I think a rampant like underlying belief. Well, there's even the prosperity church, and at least in the U.S., yeah. uh, Christians who somehow yeah. believe that the accumulation of wealth is related to their moral goodness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they can. The cause that and to effect Jesus. gets confusing there because yes. then you know you end up with people who got rich through pretty nefarious means, but it must mean that they're they're good on a fundamental level. Right. Well, I want to I want to bring. Dr. Zach's ideas (laughs) back to the question of oval and also the question of language. Much as the New Yorker review points out that we have to evaluate many sentences in the book based on the structural position of the person speaking the sentence, that the word sustainability, for instance, might really mean displacement and gentrification depending upon who's speaking it. Yeah. And similarly, Anya's friend, Laura says Lewis, much like Dr. Zach in the real world, has given up on solving structural problems, that he's trying to privatize ethics, that Oval is what she calls a white savior pill that accelerates reality's problems rather than addressing them. Mm -hmm. So I guess, am I characterizing that correctly, first of all? Do you you (laughs) see this critique of Oval extending to larger, quote-unquote, societal remedies being proposed to confront the world's definitely uh, the world today. Yes. And, um, I get it because stuff, it feels really out of control. 
Um, I also don't know how to fix climate change. I also don't know how to deal with gentrification. I'm also a gentrifier. I also take planes. I don't know how to justify those things. I don't know how to get out of them. And I do not have any, like, like I have negative amount of solutions. Um, and probably working on the book and trying to get into the mindset of somebody who believes in solutions made it worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I may have become... Um, even less idealistic in the sense of believing um, in solutions that will solve the problems they set out to solve, um, that there is an ideal that can be reached through um, problem solving. I think I've even become less adherent to that set of beliefs. Um, but I do, I do still think that um, action is possible, but it has to be something... Um, much more modest, probably. And I believe in kind of collective action based on relatively small, <laughs> small behavioral changes, for instance. Um, yeah. The weather is acting funny in the world of ovals. So I'm glad you mentioned climate change, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think climate change is foregrounded. We f- sort of feel it as a, uh, I'm hesitant to say a mood, but yeah. it feels like a, a, it cli- is a, mood. Yeah, <laughs> a climate totally. in the book. Uh, it's, but it's on the margins of the narrative. I sort of connect these chemical shortcuts around emotional labor and altruism and income inequality to the things we always like to focus on, the techno fixes around yeah. climate change. Mm-hmm. So like various acts of geoengineering, whether that be putting uh, sulfur oxide into the atmosphere, like to mimic that a volcano or mm-hmm. to, I think there's a physicist in Iowa who wants to explain load the moon to change the way we wobble on our axis. Um, Amazing. But even just news stories of um, centering, say, like a 16-year-old from their science fair who's discovered a way for bacteria to eat plastic, that we love these stories where we're the center, we're the solution, humans are the solution, particularly stories that don't confront the structural. So if we find a bacteria that we can dump in the ocean to eat, eat plastic, then we don't have to ask the question of how we stop making right. more plastic yeah, or I mean, less the, plastic. The problem is us. So the solution probably isn't going to come from us. Yeah. <laughs> um, you put this very well, um, saying that we're still the center of the story. We're still the protagonist in all of these solutions. And I totally agree that solutionism, <laughs> whatever that, that term, that invented term is, is problematic precisely because... Um, it it wants to perpetuate a, a world in which the human is the primary actor and also also the savior and um, and also kind of the top of the hierarchy, um, which is a gross misunderstanding of ecosystems. Um, it also seems to imply a possible reversal, um, like like if like futurism is also often a reversal. This idea of, we could replace the bacteria and that would fix it. When of course like. Once the bacteria are gone, the whole ecosystem has changed and you can't just put them back. Um, I guess I am thinking a lot about narratives where the human does become decentered and where we can think about um, the human role within ecosystems in a non-hierarchical way and where transitioning to a new way of being in the world is not horrifying, but rather um, different lateral uh, it's a it's a it's a becoming um and i think 
that's that ties into my interest in kind of emotional labor and what empathy that's not co-opted might look like. It would have to expand far beyond the human. Mm. Well, I mean, when you talk about how we're all complicit as gent whether we're gentrifiers or not, but like you were saying, you're a gentrifier and you, <laughs> you, you, you... <laughs> I'm not wearing this badge with honor, but yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, so am I. And um but when I think about we don't not knowing about the solution, on one level I feel like and I want you to push back against this. <laughs> but on one level, I feel like the solution is simple, but getting there is complex. Like, for yeah. instance, um, allowing a lot of things that are not human to flourish on the planet on their own terms mm-hmm. would be a solution yes. to a lot of what is coming down the pike. Yes, except, well, I will, I'll do the job of pushing back. <laughs> How do we decide where the natural reserve starts and ends? And, like, is the boundary of the natural park that we don't touch, is that permeable? Well, I wasn't even thinking a... a you a, weren't thinking of an isolated area where nature n- could happen. No, I mean, because I wouldn't... I mean, this is where we get back to human versus nature, right? Yes. Nature could happen <laughs> as if it's not happening. As if it's not happening, right. as if we're not part of it. Right. Yeah. But I wouldn't... I wasn't necessarily... Though I think as a, as a stopgap measure, mm-hmm. having parts of the world regenerate... Um, Maybe that would be a, a yes. strategy, but as a like a long term measure, I wasn't thinking of of places where humans were prohibited from going. So but, then, what is it like to well, have? Well, yeah. when we think about, I know you've written about Jeff Vandermeer's Area X, and and I think of Stalker and the mm-hmm. Zone. Like what what's common about those is that you're when a human's there, you're you're not living on human terms. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe yes. there need to be more areas where humans can be, but you're sort of living on, on terms that aren't human terms. Right. I think that's exactly, I, I think of Area X and, and Stalker and, and some other zones like that in fiction as um, really, um, really instrumental to my thinking of um, like a, a humanity that is becoming um, something else um, and no longer driving the action. <laughs> um, but I have no idea what that coexistence looks like because it requires a major sacrificing of our not just the things that we care about and, and hold dear, but the things that we think define us as humans. Um, and this like big, I think, radical re-questioning of what the human really is is... Um, is foregrounded in, in a lot of science right now, like neuroscience, ecosystem science. Um, it's, it gets really hard to define where the human stops and starts. And none of those kind of enlightenment um, um, qualities like consciousness or creativity or intelligence or self-awareness like seems to hold up at all. Um, and we'd have to let go of a lot of those, I think, to end up in some kind of area X coexistence space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard also because traditionally humanity has been very useful as a term for us because it has allowed us to afford people common status as humans. That's what humanism did. And arguably we need that still. So no, I totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, I wasn't imagining the world as an area X necessarily. I could imagine (laughs) being human enclaves, like humanized enclaves. So reserves for us. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is or a, like a yeah. or sort of a a um a whole spectrum of mm-hmm. possible levels of of living on human of what we call human terms versus yeah. living on 
non-human terms. There's some really great, um, I think it's 2312, the Kim Stanley Robinson book. I've read a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's phenomenal. It's great. And there are these um, asteroids, like in this future world, humans live, I think it's 2312. I hope I'm not mixing it up. But there are humans who live in these asteroids uh, they can travel between them, but many of them are kind of permanent homes, and they all have different themes. There's, like, the darkroom asteroid, and there's, like, the golf course asteroid, and there are different gravity levels, and um, and there are these kind of micro-reserves for kinds of humans. And then some of them are used to house Earth species who were going to go extinct. Mm-hmm. So they put them in these floating asteroid – well, traveling asteroid habitats. Um, and so I just love this idea that you could have conservation at the same time as new forms of living and that preserving is just as important as changing. And I don't, you know, that balance is of course never going to be a perfect one, but I I do believe in, in, you know, saving what's there and understanding it um, at the same time, knowing that it's not going to ever be static. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Elvia Wilk about her novel Oval. Well, I wanted to pivot back to the the rottenness underneath the language. So we get we get these these grand proclamations, kind of like the proclamation you read from Randy earlier in the interview, the corporation Randy, um, and then we get the the reality on the ground of like the self composting eco settlement isn't really working. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the promises that they have to be on this mountain, uh, they have to sneak down with their trash and. Um, put it in the normal trash at the bottom of the mountain because the composting isn't working and the house, the wood is swelling from too much heat being generated. But I was also thinking about Anya's sort of dubious position in relationship to her own family wealth. And I was connecting that maybe tenuously, but I was connecting it to another essay of yours called performing authenticity. Um, both around corporate behavior, but ultimately around Anya, who I think is by far the most likable character and the most partially because she's the most skeptical and the most mm-hmm. um, inter- interrogating of of the world that she's in. But I also think self-interrogating. But I wonder if she's performing authenticity because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> she's distancing herself from her very wealthy parents and sister And she's doing this partly by being obsessed with growing her own food, borrowing, trading, recycling. But she also sees her obsession with living sustainably as what she calls an embarrassing overcompensation. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of hard to know how deep these interests run for her, how deep her critique of her family wealth is. Because in a way, it feels like, is she doing anything tangible Mm -hmm. around the wealth that she has from her family? Or are, are all of these sort of performative acts to make it seem as if she doesn't have the wealth yes. rather than <laughs> be in, in a position mm-hmm. of, of some sort of more meaningful responsibility re- with regards to it. I just wanted to hear your thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, well, man, you really, um, you really <laughs> hit the nail on the head with that one. And I am still unsure about Anya's um, owning of her own political accountability. And in some ways you could describe the book as like a journey of a person coming to terms with their privilege and their 
responsibility to do something with it. And there are a lot of points in the book, maybe minor ones, where she says, like, if only Lewis could tell me what to do with this money. Like, I can't, I can't figure out, like, she's so resistant to, like, the solution, solutionism, his grand solutions, um, which at, at one point, I think he, he uh, explicitly suggests she pay for the drug with her wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's so resistant to using it because partially because it seems so tainted, like money is just dirty. It just feels dirty. And to use it feels like you'd be using a dirty tool. Um, and on the other hand, she knows that not doing anything with it is really kind of like pathetic because <laughs> she has access to this privilege. Um, and I think it's throughout the course of the story that she starts to try and pin down what her priorities and her ideals are to try and figure out how she could potentially act with the resources that she has. Um, it doesn't go, the narrative doesn't take us all the way there. I'll put it that way without spoiling, um, too much, but there's, I think a suggestion of a realization and a becoming of her own, um, political actor, Hmm. um, by owning what she owns, (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. Well, I'd love it if you'd read another section, a little longer one that isn't really about oval, but it does raise a lot of the questions of natural versus artificial, authentic versus performed, even though it takes place in a sauna. The sauna section. So Anya is in the sauna at the gym where she goes to deal with her own body horror, (laughs) the horror of being in a body. In the reddish light cast by the hot stove in the sauna, all she could see in the other bodies was her own shape thrown into relief. Do my ankles look like hers or like hers? She mentally pieced together her own shape from parts of theirs. Then she tried to see the parts of their bodies as beloved shapes for the circling hand or puckering mouth of the people who loved them. She saw them, and she envisioned the way their lovers saw them. She saw them and she saw, reflexively, how she might be seen, as a recipient for a hand or a mouth, as Lewis must have seen her as too soft here and too gaunt here and too pallid around the corners here, but nonetheless the ideal arrangement of positive and negative spaces for his positive and negative spaces to fit around. He had never said she was perfect, but it was clear he thought her perfectly formed for him, his complementary match. Things she had never considered laudatory, like the smooth complexion of the skin of her back, the high arches of her feet, he noted and treated with reverence. He had called her arches aristocratic. The line for the showers dwindled, and she left the sauna, found her flip-flops, and chose a stall in the back where she could rinse without being confronted by other bodies. Maybe Germany just isn't a nice place for communal showers, she thought, and shut the water off. Fumbling around in the inconveniently shaped locker to find her underwear, she realized she was gripping her rented towel too tightly, and that she ought to exercise a more casual relationship to the towel and therefore to her nakedness. She ought to demonstrate that she was not afraid of all that dumb vigorousness around her, ladies with towels draped around their shoulders and trailing between their feet. One woman's tampon string was hanging freely between her legs as she bent back straight to root through her bag. Anya drew the thin towel together and tied it in a knot around her chest, Its bottom edge skimmed the bottom edge of her bottom. This was as far as she would go today in claiming herself as a native creature in this place. This place 
where they all went together, women and men, to put their bodies into machines, to move in time with music coming from other machines in their ears, to drink water that they had carried all the way here in little plastic bottles that had been manufactured and shipped from other countries inside machines. They were here to scrunch their muscle groups into painful knots and then to retreat to a dark and hot room where they could mingle their sweat, putting their naked bodies as close to one another as possible without quite touching. No, this place was not a natural place. She'd been shown the machines and locker rooms when she signed up, but nobody had ever given her a tour and said, This is the little cubby where you will place your toiletries while you shower, but you will have to open your eyes filled with soap while you're reaching for them, lest you graze your knuckles with the woman using the shower next to you. This is the row of lockers that you should never choose, because opening one of these lockers will require kneeling under some other woman's damp crotch. This is the mirror before which you will stand to dry your hair, and stare at all the women lined up next to you, who are all standing there with elbows raised, using a wind-making device invented for the sole purpose of removing the water from their hairs, an activity that all of them likely spent 10 to 20 minutes on every day, just waving a machine around to blow on their hairs to speed up the evaporation process. Women who are all doing the same thing and watching you do it too, but who are somehow less curious about you than you are about them. This is the place you will learn not to stare. We've been listening to Elvia Wilk read from Oval. I just love that section of the way you make weird and artificial <laughs> a sauna experience, which mm -hmm. seems so elemental and so... Uh, natural. And I wanted to, I guess I wanted to ask you more about whether it's this dichotomy between natural and artificial that you keep interrogating is why you also come back to um, technologically assisted means of empathy in your writing in general. Because you not only write about oval that you've invented and oxytocin, but you also have an essay called Trauma Machine, which looks at attempts to rewire empathy using virtual reality technology mm -hmm. is that do you do you have a sense a self narrative or story about why mm. you you find yourself coming back to technology mm -hmm. in relationship to he humanness <laughs> and yeah. particularly empathy yeah i mean the vr essay is about um humanitarian initiatives that use vr to um to hopefully get people to identify more with other people or with the natural environment. Um, and they are really, some of them really quite absurd sounding. Like if you get people to um, use VR to swim through um, a coral reef, apparently they'll use less toilet paper or stuff like this, that just like the correlation is so, it's so like outlandish, but seems true at least for a short amount of time or, um, that you would be in a village of like Rohingya refugees and once you take off the helmet after having walked around this refugee encampment that you might um, donate more of your annual income to refugee causes. And there's just an, an, an endless attempt to quantify how much we are, are impelled to act based on how much we feel and I find this imperative to feel very upsetting. We feel a lot, most of us. And people who don't want to feel more won't feel more. They'll become more hateful and more xenophobic and more resistant. Um, it actually seems quite polarizing to insist on feeling more as the route to, to solving um, 
various problems. Um, but I do kind of observe this, like, um, yeah, this desire to, to use, um, quote unquote artificial means like it's, it's easy to think of virtual reality as, as an artificial technology but when you think about stuff like hormones it's a bit harder because for instance I eat red meat and I know that a lot of it is I try to avoid this but I'm, I eat a lot of hormones and antibiotics um, likely a lot of the time and it's like as a as populations we're, we're like our chemical makeups are very influenced by these maybe artificial, um, um, maybe toxins, maybe I, you know, it's, I don't know where the boundary is anymore, um, between, <laughs> you know, between artificial and natural, but even between my inside and the outside world. And maybe that passage that you asked me to read about the sauna is also about this kind of like internal experience versus like being part of a collective feeling one's body versus knowing one's body suspecting that something's going on in one's body this kind of body paranoia that I um I wind up with a lot because I I know about pollution or I know about what's going on in the environment so I often um you know hypochondria is is one expression of this kind mm -hmm. of paranoia um but I think it has to do with our increasing awareness of the breakdown of artificial and um, natural categories that leads to what I can only describe as body horror. Well, one of the things that I, I thought was particularly interesting about that essay with for writers of narrative is that there were two camps mm -hmm. around um, two separate different approaches um, on how to achieve the best result of humanitarian aims through virtual storytelling. Uh, and I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot to ask you to talk about the two camps um or i can talk i could prompt you with what they yeah, are prompt me with what the difference between those were yeah so one camp ar arises from the belief that the more real something feels the more it will breed empathy mm -hmm. that if we feel as if we are walking in someone else's shoes this will create change more than a convincing art argument would create change okay yeah and I the other approach the other approach being that a choreographed narrative, which is premised on the idea that embodied immersion would allow for more persuasive storytelling, mm -hmm. that once you're embodied, we could persuade you in the storytelling itself. Yeah. And the other one is just by being immersed mm -hmm. and feeling like you're someone else yeah. is how you're going to get the change. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about now that this it's, it's, um, it's just so weird when you like sort of like follow down to the bottom of the pile, the premises that these experiments are based on, like the idea that being in, like um, being in, in a more real seeming virtual environment <laughs> would be more persuasive than, for instance, reading a novel. Um, and that there it, it makes sense on one level that if you're a body in a space that you um, you know, you learn through multisensory feedback, if you feel actually threatened um, because of um, adrenaline that's, you know, an adrenaline surge incited by a fake helicopter above that you would internalize information and maybe combine intellectual and emotional understanding differently. But there are these kind of two schools of thought when it comes to, um, like, the importance of VR storytelling. One is really about the story and the craft and leading someone through a narrative that is extra convincing by dint of the medium. And the other one is like, 
against your will <laughs> or like regardless of your will. We are going to terrify you in this like um, simulation of a war zone. And that is going to get you to feel something and knock something loose. Um, and they have different, I, I see these as different sort of like coming from different places. One is really about like the power of story and, and awareness raising through conscious, you know, uh, raising consciousness through compelling um, narratives, I guess. And the other one is like, it's a, <laughs> this is a, a, a direct response that is involuntary that you're going to have. But both of them get to the same thing. I mean, whether or not they have a different kind of attitude towards like your personal participation in your enlightenment, they both want you to go through a transformative enlightening experience and arrive at an emotional epiphany about fixing the world or feeling for somebody or having a quote unquote human connection. But the argument was also which one would do that better. Yes, right? <laughs> there is a there is a real argument. They can go together. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that's the way it goes. Is that they the the idea is that you'll have a very compelling story that you'll want to go through that will keep you involved. And meanwhile, you're being kind of immersed in this. But they're but they're different like truth claims, or they're different claims to how um, how emotion and awareness um, relate to like reality and, and maybe different relationships. They make different claims about um, how important like, like knowing and learning is to the process of changing. Mm -hmm. I was sort of connecting them. If we thought of the novel as also virtual reality technology, that maybe the, the walking in other shoes is when the novel effectively creates a what they the quote unquote fictive spell mm -hmm. where we know when people say the words disappeared mm -hmm. and I was just in the novel. <laughs> um I wonder if that's you know, maybe that's the one version versus an if you're reading uh Tanahasi Coates essay. Yeah, and you're like, oh this craft has really persuaded me or like I've and I've followed the story. And, yeah, but you yeah. never disappear. Yeah, in the in the way you would, you're not mm -hmm. under this a spell. I mean, mm -hmm. Except both of them are spells in the in the VR world, I guess. Yeah, in the, in different ways, they do. Yeah, they do allow me to think about other technologies of empathy and other technologies of immersion, such as fiction, um, which itself depends on a false construction of realism. If it's realist fiction and a set of shared conventions about what is reality. The thing about VR that's particularly weird, though, is that you have physical responses that you can't control. Mm. Um, a VR researcher told me that it was very common in her laboratory that uh, most people there at some point broke their tailbones from um, trying to sit on a piece of VR furniture. Um, you know, researchers who spend all their days on this, we all know that that's not a real chair, but you sit on it <laughs> because your body has a really hard time. I mean, with very minimal intervention, like um, sight, sound, maybe some vibration, um, your sense of space will be truly created. Um, and it's it's very hard to fight your body like that. Well, maybe that's a good place to pivot to some of your thoughts on, on what is called the new weird. There's a, there's a part in the book that feels particularly Jeff Vandermeerian to me. And that's when Anya is thinking about hemispheric sleep, um, how some creatures can shut down one hemisphere of the brain at a time and do all sorts of things while half asleep. So dolphins can surface to breathe and birds can keep flying while half asleep. And, and most weird was the, <laughs> how ducks can keep 
the eye open that is on the awake side of the brain to watch for predators. Um, but at one point near the end of the book, Anya imagines that she has also developed this skill or possibly imagines that she also has developed this skill. And when I think of this, along with her creating architecture out of cartilage, the crossing of the divide between the human animal and the non-human animal, it sort of brings me to, I think, your larger interest in the new weird, which is also something that I think by your definition resists categorization mm -hmm. or, or, or tries to ex resist right. categorization. So talk to us about the new weird and the weird. Mm -hmm. The sauna scene that I read a bit earlier, I also, when reading it just now, realized that it's pretty weird um, in in the sense, um, so I'm, I'm just sort of directly pirating Mark Fisher's definitions of the weird and the eerie when I talk about this kind of fiction. Um, and he says that it's... Um, it's this perceptual flip that happens when you see the inside of your life or normality from the position of an outside. So it's not the awareness that there's an inside to experience, but it's when you actually see back at the experience from a different position. Um, and that that is the fundamental encounter with the weird um, when what you have maintained to be kind of consensus reality becomes destabilized because you, um, for whatever reason, are seeing it from, from an external perspective. Um, and so that kind of weirding can happen in all sorts of ways, I think, and does happen in parts of my book, um, even though I didn't know so much about the weird when I was writing it. Um, but same, yeah, with this example of, of like this imagined ability to um, sleep with one hemisphere of her brain that Anya develops, um, which is just a way of weirding the experience of being half asleep and waiting for a text message from someone you love who's estranged from you. It feels like half your brain is asleep. Um, what if there were a biological explanation for that? Um, in any case, um, the new weird as a genre, I I'm not very like invested in genre definitions. I hate them. They mainly work against authors. I think like I, I don't want to define anything that I'm writing or anybody else's writing, but Jeff Vandermeer, for instance, has put together a few anthologies on the new weird, um, that definitely do. There is some kind of cohesion in the approach. I do think it's related to Mark Fisher's ideas of, of weirdness and eeriness. Um, this inside outside thing. And then the eerie thing is this, um, confusion when it comes to agency. So like who's causing what? Is it a human or a non-human actor? Is the cause and effect apply when it comes to the events of the story as we um, typically try to understand cause and effect through like a linear um, narrative? Um, so those two things, this kind of like, uh, like um, experience suddenly being seen for what it is, which is incredibly constructed and freaky and um, not really understanding how like what agents are driving a set of events. Um, that's Mark Fisher's idea, and I think that applies directly to um, the fiction that has recently become categorized as New Weird. It's important to say that New Weird is called new, not because it's new at all, but because it is placing itself in opposition to and relation with Old Weird, which is H.P. Lovecraft, basically, if you're going by the weird canon. Um, and I think the new is important. As much as new sucks as a you know, post is bad, new is bad, it, they, there has to be some distancing mechanism from that legacy because the Lovecraft legacy is pretty warped and 
and yeah, like, like it's yeah. not great. Well, I mean, but I, if we were to go to the old weird for a second, I just wonder if otherness is part of the weird too. Yes. Um, because I think of on the one hand, part of the horror and the fear for Lovecraft is around otherness. Yes. And even the other of us, mm-hmm. the otherness of us, but, um, but also, obviously, also his racism and xenophobia. Yeah, these is... things are intertwined, let's say. So, I mean, is yeah. otherness part of the new weird and the fear of the otherness yeah. and the horror of otherness, That's of being question. othered? Yeah. Like the ways we can't recognize ourselves if we really look at ourselves, perhaps also? That's the question. The question is, is the idea of weirdness always going to be premised on a fear of the outside and the other? And could you have an outside that, that wasn't, terrifying and threatening and i think that's again why i like mark fisher's idea so much it's the moment that you're in the outside is when it's weird Mm -hmm. um and maybe that would be the new weird it's not when you're you know shrinking back inward because of this like cthulhu that's you know just like a foreigner from the global south taking you over um you did a great interview with marlon james recently where he said i i think he mentioned lovecraft but he he said like um you know this this like foreigner coming from the outside is like the basis for so many like detective novels when the good detective novels know that the, the weird, the freaky, the other is within. Um, and that's definitely to me much, much more interesting also. Mm -hmm. Um, which is again, why I think a a lot of my writing comes back to this like body mystery of like what, what's going on in there. (laughs) Do we have any control over what's, you know, the bacteria in our guts? Like, are they dictating our behavior? Does it matter? Where's, are they human because we're holding them all the time? Um, and yeah, I guess seeing, seeing your own inside from the perspective of the outside, that would be my hope for new weird. Yeah. I, I like don't, that hope. Yeah. I'm not sure that it will ever like anything that depends on some legacy. It's like, you'll always be struggling to not recapitulate those mistakes. And it's sometimes hard to know if like a new quote unquote, new weird fiction is, is, is new enough. Yeah. Well, I want, I want to, link this to another essay that you wrote that I loved and, and this, this question of weirdness and, and selfhood. Um, it's an article you wrote in eFlex called the word made fresh mystical encounter and the new weird divine that both looks at Jeff Vandermeer's world and annihilation and at Western mystical texts, particularly of, of female mystics. So it's interesting that you title this essay, the word made fresh uh, beyond the pun of the the word made flesh. I'm glad you got the pun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure other people got the pun too. Um, because both Vandermeer and the women mystics are engaged with unknowability and thus experiences that are beyond language, mm-hmm. which makes me curious about if that's how you make the word fresh. Yeah. If, if the word fresh comes from from allowing for otherness and things beyond language. For Vandermeer, the the... Um, the place that's irreducible by the human mind is area X, which, as we talked about earlier, has some shared qualities with the zone in Tarkovsky's movie, The Stalker. And for the mystics, the irreducible force is God. Um, Much like the way you describe the new weird as resisting categories, having a mystical experience with God obliterates categories and boundaries Mm -hmm. between self and other, between human and divine. And the female scientists, as they get deeper into Area X and Annihilation, 
in order to supposedly study it and supposedly study it objectively become quote unquote contaminated by the subject. Mm -hmm. Um, they're no longer able to maintain objectivity because similar to the hormonal nasal spray, (laughs) they inadvertently inhale some fungal spores and, um, and their consciousness is changed by the environment itself, which, you know, is probably an exaggerated version of what's happening all the time, I would imagine, in the real the real world. So both the experience in Area X and the mix, mystical texts written by uh, female mystics are circular and contradictory. Mm-hmm. And you say that these texts are interactive in the sense that the reader has to become radically absorbed to mirror the attempts at self-annihilation by the author of the text. So coming back to this question of otherness and the fear of otherness or, or the ways we can make room for otherness um, with human reserves, maybe in the middle of some of these, these areas, do you see this, do you see this as the wellspring of making the word fresh again, the, mm-hmm. the paradoxical quest of the author to annihilate himself, even as they remain somehow author or yeah. human? It's curious um, set of questions related to what we were talking about earlier, this hollowing out of language via corporate speak or culture lingo. Um, this The question of how to make words fresh is definitely an underlying one. Um, it v- approached in a very different way in this essay when it's much more about the failure of all language to encompass um, experience and the failure of all categories. Um, I would say that... Um, well, first of all, I had never been particularly um, um, reflective on God <laughs> until I took a class on mysticism at the New School a year or so ago, um, when I was just completely blown away by the um, science fictional um, qualities of these texts um, written hundreds of years ago by women, some of them known, some of them kind of unknown or obscure um, also men, but the female the female authored texts um, seem to me particularly shocking and fascinating because it's the moment of confrontation with the ultimate other, the divine, the unknowable, the disembodied, pure love, um, pure absence, pure presence, total contradiction, total outside to human experience. And the encounter is with a body, a vision of a body with of Christ for a lot of them. And and, uh, you know, it's a mystery of Catholicism. The fun- fundamental one um, is like the, the incarnation and the resurrection, like how how this um, in giant, in, you know, inhuman, unknowable entity could be manifested in a human body. Like that's the mystery. Um, and I find that a really generative mystery when thinking about other kinds of contact with enormous systems that I feel like might as well be the divine, um, <laughs> whether or not, you know, I'm certainly not ever likening like the internet or like, you know, technology or whatever to God. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to talk about like how to make contact with the unknowable and the inhuman, um, or the non-human, I guess, better than inhuman. Um, and what that, yeah, what that interface might look like and mm. how weird to think of this like media interface of the body of Christ. Um, and then what's so fascinating about a lot of those encounters is that 
the body of Christ is penetrated through his side wound and there's a lot of gender bending and mutual penetration and it's super sexy and it's super abject and none of those boundaries also like cultural boundaries that I now take for granted such as gender such as life versus death such as animate versus inanimate like none of those seem to apply here um, and that is super science fictional. You know, that's mm-hmm. also a lot of what's happening in Area X. It's like, is is it is it life? Is it <laughs> is it inert? Um, what is this entity that's transforming us? And this idea of like becoming or like willing transformation, like to to willingly annihilate one's will and oneself and one's um, status as the author of the text, like that seems like the willing annihilation of our category humanity at the top of an order of species that needs to happen. Mm. It kind of feels like the female mystics should supplant Lovecraft as the old weird. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is exactly, yes, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> where I'm going. <laughs> well, uh, to return Briefly to Katie Waldman in the, in the New Yorker review, she she suggests that everyone in the world of Oval are underreacting because when something real happens, whether it's the death of a parent or, for that matter, global climate apocalypse, they don't have the tools nor the language for what they are experiencing. Mm-hmm. But when I think about your look at mysticism, it makes me feel like perhaps the problem is is not not having the language necessary, but actually our fear or our horror, or our intolerance of things that could never be expressed in language. Right. That perhaps the problem isn't language, but a reaction to things that can't be languaged. Mm-hmm. And that is that is bound up in um, historical constructions of um, inside and outside when it comes to um, the um, the us and the them, I guess. Um like I could be very literal about that and say kind of like the other is kind of like often constructed as like pre-linguistic or like um, like not having access to like abstract thought or like um, I guess the failure of language is a rough thing to constantly deal with as somebody who's a writer <laughs> and also to me seems like the only thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're not driving towards the black hole of signification, as Tom McCarthy puts it, then what are you doing? Um, like the black hole of unrepresentability is like where all writing is heading or orbiting this space where like representation and signification fall apart. Um, and you have to get as close to the black hole as possible without getting sucked in. I mean, I guess, unless you're a, a mystic. But isn't that amazing that they could report back from the black hole? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would be a, a cool thing to do. Yeah, and the black hole has all the, it contains all of the metaphorical paradoxes. Mm-hmm. We call it a hole, but it's an infinite density. Right. And it bends time and space in a way that is, in a way that none of us experience. Mark either. Fisher uses the black hole as his, um, example for what is fundamentally weird because it exists even though we don't know what it is uh, versus his other example the vampire um, which is not weird because we know exactly what it is and it doesn't exist (laughs) i was interested in something you said near the end of the essay about annihilation and i'm going to quote you back to yourself (laughs) Um, so here are some things that you said near the end of the essay (laughs) faced with the possible annihilation of the planet as we know it Certain modes of knowing fall short, especially insufficient 
is knowledge that purports humans to be distinct from ecosystems, much less in control of them. Among the surprises and ironies, at the heart of all knowledge production, says Donna Haraway, is the fact that we are not in charge of the world. A mysticism for the Anthropocene, just like mysticism through the ages, would regard the object, the quote-unquote object, of knowledge as alive and inseparable from the mind and body that encounters it. That is, rather than fictionalizing science, a mysticism for today would have to weird it. And then later you say, female mysticism offers a foundation for non-anthropocentric knowledge that is not at all opposed to other types of knowledge, and that the living, sporous world of new weird fiction may be the start of a comprehensive reversal of the Anthropocene age, that loss of the bounded self is only truly horrifying with an anthropocentric framework that prizes human beings in its current state over all other forms and ways of being, that active self-annihilation might paradoxically offer a path toward ecosystemic preservation. That's just... Ooh, okay. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that. Okay. <laughs> I, I imagine, I'll just say this now, I imagine I'll be reading this to future guests and asking their <laughs> thoughts. But, I would uh, love to know <laughs> what they think. But talk to us more about this and mm. perhaps any work in light of these thoughts that you find particularly exciting in this right. area. Well, I think more and more I've been circling ideas of contamination, right? So that ties back to this confusion about what's artificial and what's natural and what's implanted in the human versus like native to the human. And, um, and I, I think this point about that what happens in Area X in Vandermeer's book, that the objective scientist can no longer uphold a pretense of scientific objectivity because she has become contaminated Therefore, she has become part of the ecosystem. But of course, she was always part of every ecosystem she was studying, as are, you know, as are we all. Um, this is one way of kind of returning to this like classic feminist project of prioritizing or giving um, importance to subject experience as a, you know, a fundamental political move to say that like sub subjectivity matters, um, and that we are all subjective in one level. But when I say like, this is not a form of knowledge that's opposed to other forms of knowledge, it's because I'm not invalidating scientific knowledge production. Like at the same time that we need ways to access and understand climate change that have nothing to do with numbers, because hammering numbers into people who don't want to listen has not worked. Numbers are needed, you know, and I just want to try and always preserve this, um, you know, maybe maybe Haraway's idea of situated knowledge is um, where no every kind of knowledge is fragmentary. And the only way to um, be accountable for one's knowledge production is to um, allow for one's own perspective and one one's own embeddedness in ecosystems that one studies Um well, it makes me think a little bit of a conversation you had on your podcast where the guest was talking about the difference in orientation between Buckmeister Fuller's phrase, we are all astronauts, and mm -hmm. Sun Ra's phrase, we are all aliens, mm -hmm. the one putting us as the hero, right? Um, and the other one self-annihilating. Yes, and weirding us as such. There's yeah. this great... Um, maybe tangential, this um, great scientist called Ann Pollock, whose work I've recently become familiar with, who wrote an essay about um, 
like queer birds, like how birds are um, supposedly becoming more homosexual because of certain toxins in their environment, and that um, they've they're they're no longer kind of pair bonding to mate, um, like male-female bird partnerships, but that they seem to be having a great time hanging out in, in different kinds of queer family and friend relationships. Mm. And then when this is, stuff is talked about in the media, it's, it's often so, so, so clearly kind of like, um, like nature-obsessed, um, kind of like, like the, the birds are being warped, you know, and homophobic, just like the birds' natural state is being warped by the pollution. And like, this is terrible because they'll never reproduce and they'll go extinct. What, so there's two sides of it. One is clearly homophobic and one is also like preservationist. Like, well, if they're not mating, that's like scary for us. But Pollock has this wonderful um, way of framing this. First of all, like the birds are having a great time. Like they seem to be enjoying themselves. <laughs> Maybe instead of toxicity, we could think about this in terms of intoxication, like, for instance, societies who couldn't drink the water where they lived, so they were drinking fermented beverages and probably were drunk for generations. Like, is that toxicity or is that an intoxicated society? Like, could we think of these drunk birds as having, like, a wonderful time getting trashed, as she puts it? And then also kind of questioning the telos of, like, mating and reproduction as, like, the point of nature and the point of life. And I really like that conjunction of things when thinking about contamination that isn't negative or that, you know, as much as we want the birds to perpetuate and, and as a species and survive, like what if the telos of survival changed? Mm -hmm. um, and like, yeah, like just what if contamination weren't so much about toxicity, but about like a willing mutual becoming something different? Are there uh, works of contamination <laughs> that uh, that are fictional uh, that jump to mind to you that you'd point people towards? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, um, maybe to be like quite literal, like, um, the Andromeda strain is an amazing book. <laughs> it's very trashy, but it's awesome. It's like an early kind of like paranoia book about, um, yeah, a strain, an alien, an alien strain of toxic something coming from outer space that we have to inoculate ourselves against, whatever. That's that's actually like a foundational one for me. There's some great Richard Powers book um, where he deals with um, like um, bacterial contamination that the name of which I'm forgetting now. Well, certainly his new book. His new book, The Overstory. The Overstory yeah, there's, well. I mean, contamination is the wrong word, but there's exactly. definitely interspecies blurring. Yes. I think he's doing something quite interesting with this also. I would put him on the list. Um, I think um, I've been researching lately stories about women becoming plants, <laughs> prompted by an invitation to give a talk about plants. Hmm. Um, and I've been looking. There are just some really great short stories, a Margaret Atwood short story about a woman who disappears and perhaps becomes a tree and this kind of um, sort of as a pursuit into asking you know, why, why women might be the ones to be more permeated by God or more, you know, able to be contaminated by the environment they study or, you know, has to do with the women as nature, man as culture thing, but also like willingly becoming other is a way of um, taking ownership of that um, obligation. Well, before we end, I want to press a little bit more on this idea um, where a mysticism for the Anthropocene would regard the quote-unquote object of knowledge is alive and inseparable from the mind and the body that encounters it. Mm -hmm. If we both consider the objects of knowledge and our study to be not only alive, 
but inseparable from us. And if we consider likewise the mind and the body to be inseparable in a similar way, they, we aren't just knowing things or studying them with a disembodied consciousness. I wanted to return to the question of the body and of work in Oval mm-hmm. in light of this. So in your essays, you've asked the question of which artists get to have their work evaluated for the work itself, for the thing in itself, and which artists don't get to exclude their body and identity from the analysis. Right. Um, a question that reminds me of what Yun Song Kim calls the white cube of freedom mm-hmm. and how work by white people gets to be abstract and universal and free of the body that produced it. And similarly, in your essay on oxytocin, you talk about how seeing empathy as a biological response skips over the question of emotional labor altogether. Or to say it in the way it is said in Oval, giving money away because it feels good is not the same thing as actual kindness. And the corporate-sponsored fantasy that the world is becoming immaterial and disembodied in an exciting way, where books are no longer objects, where artists no longer make artwork but consult, where everything is on the internet, completely ignores that there actually is a body of the internet, like a bodily cost of the internet itself, like who is mining the precious metals for computer chips mm-hmm. uh, or that electronic waste is 70% of the toxic waste in our landfills or that our wireless life involves cables going across the bottom of the ocean or that uh, global computer servers are projected to consume 20% of the world's electricity by 2025. Right amounting to 4% of global greenhouse emissions. Um, And that Microsoft and Google are now dropping servers to the bottom of the ocean to keep them cool. Mm -hmm. So they're developing technologies to put these servers at the bottom of the sea. Yet we experience all of these things, phones, computers, kind of like the white cube of freedom as something magically ethereal and clean and without a body attached I know this is a long question. No, it's a but, great question. But I wanted to hear more about your thoughts on dematerialization and virtuality of our experience mm-hmm. in connection to our protagonists who sold out creating, no longer creating actual artworks mm-hmm. to be artists with good paychecks, but yeah. no bodies of work. Yes, that makes sense to me as a set of connections. Um, and I, I hope that I can add something to that very nice um interwoven summary. I think the fantasy of dematerialization has haunted um, us for a really long time. The fantasy of the cloud, the fantasy of being, being equal. I think that returning always to the question of labor is what helps me return to the body and to the material because someone is always doing the work. Whether or not eventually we'll get automated technologies to do more and more of the work that pushes different kinds of work onto humans. Um, increasingly, we see um, work that we wanted machines to do to um, be displaced onto people who can do it better and faster, certain kinds of image recognition. It's always going to be cheaper to have humans do it. This is the um, the kind of it seems like a cycle of like the fantasy of dematerialization that instead of dematerializing labor just makes it invisible and pushes it down where you can't see it. And then it becomes even harder to um, 
advocate for the rights of the workers, to put it most bluntly. Um, but I do think in in the book, probably the um, the narrator, no, she's not the narrator, she's the protagonist, the protagonist's relationship to her body and to some extent to her gendered body becomes her confrontation with the forces that she has no control over. So when she develops a mysterious rash, it's clearly related to her estrangement and her relationship and her feelings of powerlessness. It's also related to her being contaminated by her environment and by this house. Um, she can't help but be permeable, whether or not she she wants to be. Um, she can't exist in the white cube of freedom because she has this female body. Um, and I really started to think of the way that like her like physical um, symptoms could be a form of knowledge rather than sort of like this um, indication of helplessness, like that she the, the bodily knowledge that she's gathering, like the data of her own physical responses could actually lead the story and could cons- could constitute like a valuable um, <laughs> a set of information about her world. Um, and in the writing process, it also became part of, you know, looking at what was happening to her allowed me to see maybe, okay, what, what does this mean about what's happening to the world? So so it bounced back and forth for me as well. But that's very connected to the the body of knowledge that female mystics produced, where what happened to their bodies, what happened to them as subjects, um, in experiences that you, you just got to believe because, you know, suspend your disbelief like Christ came to them. Um, they went inside him. Um, that those are, yeah, irreducibly physical experiences that they managed to put into words as well as possible, but that are forms of knowledge that rely on embodiment um, fundamentally. And that I, I like the idea of the body possessing, um, yes, valuable knowledge. Well, speaking of bodies of work mm-hmm. and that given that you're an artist and not an artist consultant or you are <laughs> mainly an artist, um, what can we expect from you next in terms of bodies, if bodies of work? If someone wants to hire me to consult, I'm open. I'm not sure, I'm not sure why I haven't okay. done it yet. Um, Do you want to give your phone number and email address? <laughs> you know how to reach me. Um, I, I assume that this book hasn't made me a very attractive artist consultant, I have to say. But um, Or maybe you'd be the most attractive one. Because <laughs> yeah. really, I mean, isn't that what the artist consultant is doing, is allowing the corporation to look at what they're doing um, as if they're self-critical, mm-hmm. but while not changing their behavior. Yeah. So they have this person who's, who's making them seem like they're... Um, aware of the ways they're terrible, Mm -hmm. but without any consequences for continuing to be terrible. Yes. In that sense, I guess I would be be helpful or or I'd be, yes. Because if they could get you as an artist (laughs) consultant, Mm -hmm. then that would be the big score, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Because yes. Because you should have high, you should have very high rates. (laughs) (laughs) I hope to be co-opted someday soon. My whole yeah, I'll have to probably write a, another another more like winning book on 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 cultural co option that makes it yeah makes it seem a little more um, uh, desirable. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, I did start writing another book that relates to a lot of what we're talking about. It has to do with um, artists living in quote authentic isolation in like a nature reserve. Mm-hmm. But I got stuck because I realized I needed to do a lot more. 
research, actually, um, historical research. So now I'm working on a bunch of nonfiction essays that will hopefully support that inquiry. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can't we'll wait for that book. <laughs> It'll be a while. <laughs> okay. Well, you better come back. Okay. <laughs> it was great having you on the show. It was great being here. Thanks. We were talking today to Elvia Wilk about her debut novel, Oval, from Soft School Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Elvia Wilkes' work, her essays, interviews, reviews, and talks can be found at elviapw.com. Elvia has added to the bonus archive a reading from her talk, Death by Landscape. This joins supplemental material by Ted Chang, Marlon James, Max Porter, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Horace Gander, John Keane, Diane Williams, Christine Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.